1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody. I'm Maurice Oridwan, a co host for the podcast Queer Voices of the South, which is found under the LGBTQ Studies on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Gregory Samantha Rosenthal about her new book, Living Queer History Remembrance and Belonging in a Southern City, which was released just this past December by the University of North Carolina Press. Gregory Samantha Rosenthal, Ph.D., is Associate Professor of History and Coordinator of the Public Concentration at Roanoke College in Salem, Virginia. She teaches courses in public history, women's and gender studies, and general education. She is interested in environmental studies, working class studies, LGBTQ, queer, and trans studies, uh, community organizing, and scholar activism. Welcome to the podcast, Samantha.
1: Thank you for having me
0: it's really great to have you here um at the, the the subject matter of broad lgbtq history is something i've covered on several books uh, o- over the course of the time we've done this uh podcasts uh, in the last year and a half so uh, i found out a l- i found i've learned a lot of information about uh, our history and um some of it's very surprising some of it of course is uh, very upsetting um but I always leave a little bit optimistic that someone's writing the damn history down. (laughs) And that's, that's what I love about your book. Um, So I'm going to tell, tell the listeners a little bit about the book itself Uh, queer history is a living practice. Talk to any group of LGBTQ people today and they will not agree on what story should be told. Many people desire to celebrate the past by erecting plaques and painting rainbow crosswalks, but queer and trans people in the 21st century need more than just symbols. Today, they need access to power, justice for marginalized people, spaces of belonging. Approaching the past through a lens of queer and trans survival and world building transforms history itself into a tool for imagining and realizing a better future. Living queer history tells the story of an LGBTQ community in Roanoke, Virginia, a small city on the edge of Appalachia, interweaving historical analysis theory and memoirs. Samantha Rosenthal tells the story of her own journey coming out and transitioning as a transgender woman in the midst of working on a community-based history project that documented a multi-generational Southern LGBT community. Based on over 40 interviews with LGBTQ elders, Living Queer History explores how queer people today think about the past and how history lives on in the present. Um, having read this book, I can tell you um, it's one of those, it's going to be one of those books that will be essential in um, putting together the, the overall history of our people. Um, and our people are so diverse, and I love that we have so many um, tentacles, um, and I want to talk about that. Um, but um, one of the things that really gave me chills is, um, it's in the blurb of the book, and I'm going to reiterate uh, that, is that uh, the main point of the book is that history lives on in spaces in physical spaces, um, the neighborhood gay bar or the HIV testing clinic. Um, and some of those, I know in particular bars and you be used to have publications, some of those are disappearing. So some of that physical space is has morphed and it's kind of sad. Um, so making sure we get it down is essential. Um, tell, t- t- tell us a little bit more about all that.
1: Sure. So. As I'd say in the book, I moved to Roanoke, Virginia, which is a small city of about 100,000 people on the edge of Appalachia in Southwest Virginia. And I moved from New York City, and I had never lived south of Brooklyn. And uh, I moved down here in 2015, and I had just received a PhD in history, and I had just come out as queer. And... I moved out here afraid for what my queer life and community would look like. I had no idea what to expect, but also hopeful that I could use my skills as a historian in some productive way. So I reached out immediately to, I sort of Googled, like imagine I Googled like Roanoke LGBT, Roanoke and gay or something, and to see what would come up. And I reached out to some of the, the hits I got on Google, like the chair of the diversity center, which is an LGBT community center here to the pastor of the MCC church, which is a gay church. Um, and just said, Hey, I'm new in town. I'm a historian. Like, is that useful? You know, is there interest in doing something queer history related here? And there was, um, an abounding interest in, doing queer community history work in this community. It speaks partly to what you were just saying about people feeling, uh, really viscerally feeling the decline of queer spaces, of queer publications, such as local and regional newsletters, which had which had existed for decades, but when I moved here had dried up pretty much. Um, And people missing old ways of being queer in space together. Um, People nostalgic about um, cruising culture, which has kind of disappeared. People nostalgic about, um, sometimes nostalgic about things that maybe are best left in the past, um, such as, you know, simplistic ways of thinking about who belongs in queer community that traditionally excluded people. Right, so I came here and saw all of all of those feelings. I heard those feelings, and I heard uh, people's desires to work together to tell the story. And the book is kind of uh, a journey of telling the reader, of starting at that point and showing how I realized that this is going to be much more complicated than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, it's very, very personal for you and you're very generous, um, uh, with revealing how personal this was for you, because as your blurb says, you began to, began to transition while all this was happening. Uh, that's remarkable. I mean, isn't, isn't one of those pile mountains <laughs> big enough to climb? <laughs> you got two. Um, and so, uh, you said, you, you know, you moved there, you had just, you were just coming out, um. If you must have been shell shocked, and not just because it's a southern town, but because of all of that.
1: Right. Yeah, my marriage—I was married in a straight, a straight marriage that had fallen apart. I had subsequently come out as a queer man initially, and moved here with all within about twelve months of each other. Um, and yeah, so I was very disoriented. Uh, as I read in the introduction to the book, um, I didn't really, yeah, I didn't know a lot about the South except the stereotypes that I had been raised with as a New Yorker. Um, so I didn't quite understand the way race works here. I didn't quite understand, for example, you know, whether it what it would be like being a Jew, a Jewish person here, which in New York is unremarkable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But here in Roanoke is a bit more remarkable. And, And yeah, it was interesting about negotiating my queerness because there was... I could never find stable footing with two feet on the ground to really know who I was for those first few years because of the trans issue. You know, I, I had come out as a queer man in 2014. I moved here in 2015, and so my initial engagement with the project was interesting because, you know, I was perceived as a gay man, as a white cisgender gay man in the pro- in the spaces of the project. And I think, as I write about it in that book, I think that that certainly shaped the way that people in the LGBTQ community at large viewed me and viewed this project, and it also certainly shaped the way I was thinking about the past. Um, and then it's not that it's not like I. Um, really wanted to deal with being trans you know because it is uh it's a hard journey to take but it was it was exploding out of me um pretty soon after moving here i started to wear women's clothes maybe half time and then you know got to point full-time i'm wearing women's clothes but i still identified as a guy and just grappling for a couple years around like what what's going on with my gender And as I write about in the book, it's been an interesting process to um, live my life uh, now as a woman and as a lesbian and to engage with the history through those eyes. So it's like sometimes I tell people I joke about, you know, there's the that he got the emmy grammy oscar and tony awards and there's like a very elite class of people who have all all four i like to say i've been gay i've been a lesbian i've been bi i've been trans i've been all lgbt (laughs) (laughs) so it's like a unique perspective from which to think about um the different experiences within our community having been a queer guy having been a queer woman etc
0: yeah. Um, I love something you say regarding all that. You say you wanted to be in someone else's skin. And that is so powerful because I think that's the, that's a, so uh, universal, especially with, uh, young, uh, future LGBTQ people, um, who don't know yet what they are, who they are. Um, they just know that they're not in the right skin. <clears throat> um, so, and I read that, it gives me chills because uh, it leads us uh, all to do things, uh, to make our best guesses sometimes. You know, again, that's why the history is so important to record. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot of role models when I was growing up. You just kind of think, oh, I guess this is the next thing. And, and you know that you're not going to be like the rest of those people um, that you, that, that in your family. You know, you're not, you're, you, you know, you don't quite know what you are, but you don't also know, you also do know that you, I'm not going to be that. So, so it's kind of scary that you, you don't have everything laid out for you. Like they all do all nice and tidy. Uh, you have to really, really accept that you're going to have to figure it out. And sometimes that's thrilling, but a lot of times it's very scary. Um, and so. For you to have been all of those different pieces of of that acronym LGBTQ um, is pretty remarkable because not many people can say that. Um, you mentioned the lesbian word, um, and I'm gonna um, ask you now that I'm jumping down because I have that word is one of my key words to ask you about. Uh, lesbians have had their own path in in the whole broader LGBTQ history, um, and so th- and so the, and there are a lot of people in LGBTQ communities. Um, The L, people wonder, why is the L first? (laughs) So it's not alphabetical. So uh, uh, lesbians have always been, um, you know, very, very strongly um, driven by by things that are – Unique, very unique to them. Whereas there are a lot of commonality in, uh, in the other components, bi and gay and people who call themselves queer could be any number of those things. Queer could fit all kinds of things and plus means whatever you want it to be. I think, um, as, and, and it grows and it's morphing. Um, but you write a chapter about lesbians, uh, or you, you mentioned lesbians a few times in there and how they have not had the same obvious path, tell us a little bit more about that. And and that you yourself now identify that way.
1: Right, yeah, that's been an interesting journey for me personally, which is, I kind of started in the chapter with um, how I'm relating to working with older women, older lesbians, and older bi women. Uh, how do I relate to them through my own identity when we're doing this collaborative history work together? Um, but the chapter on lesbianism is broadly framed by the question of uh, the question that's really raised by a lot of our queer youth today, which is that with the proliferation of non-binary identities and uh, people who identify as pansexual and uh, all other kind of variations on, the combination of gender and sexual experience a lot of commentators have said oh lesbianism is disappearing like no no young people identify as that anymore so because our project is always about bringing people together across generations that you know that was coming up in the in the intro to the chapter i talk about an event where you know a young a young trans woman who Um, who, who does date, who dates women, who, you know, a woman who dates other women um, coming to one of our lesbian story circles where people are telling stories. And then I, you know, I see her crying and she kind of, by the end of the event, she's gone. And just thinking about how do we, how do we do lesbian history in a way that feels like for me as a trans woman who dates women and is in relationships with women, how do I see that history as mine, while also I'm not taking it away from other people, but how do we all see it as, uh, as a story that we're part of, but, but that we also, um, that inspires us for the future. So that's kind of the essence of that chapter. And yeah, it's true that when we started doing the research uh, as the history project, as this local project, it was mostly a group of men, doing the work at first, and they were finding out a lot about the bar scene, which it turns out was predominantly male spaces. Um, They were, we were talking about the spaces of gate cruising in the city, which again was a male activity, predominantly. And um, and we did that for about a year or so, and then it's just kind of like, you know, some young women involved in the project said, Uh, What about you know? What about women's stories? And um, it meant having to bring on board more women to do in leadership in the project, and then one by one connecting with some of the elders, some of the lesbian elders, um, as far away as California, all over the country, who we connected with, who who used to be involved in the Roanoke scene, and um, yeah, building those connections, and then in the years ahead. We were able to have several really, really interesting lesbian history uh, events, like social events that brought women together across generations to to talk to each other through their similarities and differences. Um, so it's been it's been a really wonderful journey, and uh, it is, and it's been a very personal journey for me too, since I do since now I do live as a lesbian.
0: Um, paralleling that is the same kind of some similar issues with, uh, race. Um, you do have a chapter about that whiteness and queerness. Um, and, um, you, you, you write about this person, Garland, who is, who helped you a lot. And I'm going to ask you to talk about Garland, but I want to talk about whiteness and queerness first. And, um, you mentioned, and you, you basically apologize for going so far in this with all the whiteness (laughs) and, and, um, a lot of the um, there are other colors out there that you had to do just like lesbians uh, had to start saying, "Whoa, well, whoa, what about us?" Um, and that's really kind of uh, mirrors the the real LGBT community because I know growing up myself, it's like, "Oh, th- they have their own world; it's a different world." Right. Um, and it's so easy to to just shrug and say, "Well, you know, um, yeah, they had their own bars, they have their own uh, houses of worship, they have their own." You know ways to cruise and things like that. So t- talk about that chapter. It was really, it's really. Um, it, 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 I, I'm glad it's there in this book. I'm, you know, I I'm like, yes, you know, we, that's we need to we need to start being really really inclusive in a way that if we can't be inclusive in the LGBT community, then no, we can't expect anyone else to. Right, outside.
1: right, yeah. I think you know Roanoke is similar to many cities across the South, in that if you look at the Geograph the geography of the city even today in 2022, it's the the where where black and white communities live and worship and um, etc is still very much a- mapped on top of the old Jim Crow um, segregated areas. So we live with the legacies of slavery. We live with the legacies of Jim Crow. We live with the legacies of redlining. But the thing is that. In LGBTQ communities at large, and these are predominantly, um, when I say at large, I mean predominantly white, white LGBTQ spaces, which in Roanoke, all of the spaces and organizations that call themselves LGBTQ are led by white people, predominantly white people involved. Um, yet our city is 30% black. And th- this might even be true in some of our southern cities that are majority black. And so there's, there's the long been this kind of uh, conflation of LGBTQ with whiteness. And it's sometimes an unspoken thing that people don't don't want to talk about. So our project at first absolutely ignored race. The project at first, it was sort of colorblind in that we said, um, we want to record LGBTQ oral histories, we want to collect archival materials. And anyone who raised their hand, we took them. And we found after a year of that, that it was disproportionately, overwhelmingly white people and disproportionately white men who were raising their hands and saying, oh, LGBT history, that's mine, that's my story. Not in a Not in an intentionally exclusive way, but just in a way of, unthinking identification in a way that for black gay men and black lesbians and black trans people in Roanoke, they don't, they don't immediately think when you say this is an LGBTQ history project that they're invited. They don't, they don't initially think that it's about them because of a long history of exclusion and racism. So, um, as you mentioned, yeah, I, I start the chapter talking about my relationship with my friend Garland, who We were just, we just had a meeting last night about an event we're working on. Um, He is a black gay man, um, a little older, maybe 10 years older than me, um, who is really, really involved in, uh, and I would say uniquely involved, both in black community here as an out gay man, and in the queer community here as one of the few black people who's, um, Who's very outspoken, and so he crosses a lot of bridges. Uh, he he makes bridges for people to cross, actually, and he 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 offered to do that for our project at first. And I talk about you know all of the politics and the issues that go into um, that kind of labor that black people are often tasked with doing. To fix white people's projects or to make them more diverse, right? Black people always ask to make white spaces more diverse. And um, so I write about just how messy that was uh, when we initially asked him to help us, help connect us with black queer people. Uh, And hopefully by the end of the chapter, the reader feels like, okay, we've messed, we've made a lot of mistakes along the way. And we have even at times reproduced these kind of pattern, historic patterns of white supremacy, but we have gotten better over time. And the the great thing now is that there is a black queer organization in Roanoke where there never was one historically. And there are black queer centric events being put on. So just in the seven years I've been here, we've seen a change in that.
0: Um, that's why i was so glad the chapter was there. It's um, it, 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 it it makes you feel uh, me. I uh, say you, us. <laughs> makes one feel that it's um, not being swept under the rug. You, you, you hit it. Uh, you addressed it full force, um, and you talked about you know what it was to say to realize. Oh wait, we're doing exactly the things that we accuse other people of doing. We're being exclusionary, um, and then you d- go about correcting that and that's what's so uplifting about yes so by the end of the chapter you're you're cheering for what happened there so uh bravo bravo um I um I, I love so many parts of the book. I want to I just I just want to talk about you have a wonderful, wonderful chapter title called Dry Queens, Sex Workers and Middle Schoolers. <laughs> and I know that just naturally works together. So talk so talk about that. It's really It was really fun just when you look at it, they go, Oh, I gotta read that.
1: <laughs> right. And the title is hinting at the fact of, like I said before, we really try to make multi-generational conversations happen. and But when we think about trans history and trans communities, there's a lot of misunderstanding in, uh, uh, between young trans kids today. As young as middle school, who I write about, we work, uh, we've partnered with this LGBTQ summer camp in Appalachia to do workshops around trans history with kids as young as, Honestly, as young as 10, 11, 12 years old. And the elders who we've done the oral histories with are, you know, trans women who might be in their 70s. And, yeah, so it's so important to connect. Uh, I wrote a piece for The Conversation, which is a, an online magazine, about this recently about how trans youth deserve trans history. Uh, young trans people deserve to know. Their ancestors to they deserve to know that trans people have been here for generations and that they don't have to they don't have to start the fight on their own, um, and so we try to create that space. But then we face the issues of, okay, well, this older trans woman that we've interviewed talks a lot about sex work in her interview. That was a big part of her life how do we talk about sex work with a middle schooler can we can we talk about sex work and um and we do and we found that you know they they're able to they're able to handle the material which is wonderful um, what about the issue of uh, and then there's the issue of terminology and so so for some of the older people that we talk about in the trans workshop or in the trans chapter they might use the term they identify as a queen, you know, rather than as a trans woman, or they use terms like transvestite or transsexual or crossdresser or maybe they idea as a drag queen. And there's a lot of fluidity historically among these different terms, but for young people today they can be very dismissive saying oh those those were not really trans the trans people the only real trans people are ones who call themselves trans you know and so that's where the issue of the stories of drag kings and drag queens comes in because we show through the oral histories that these people who performed on stages as queens and kings absolutely were thinking about their gender they were absolutely exploring who they are and how they identify in the larger world beyond the stage. Um, so I'm trying. We're trying through this work, and in this chapter, I'm trying to break down, uh, break down and make a messy puddle out of all of the different ways people think about transness, and to show that you know we we are one big. We're it's a trans umbrella, as sometimes people say. There's many different historic ways of being trans and we kind of need to bring everyone together and say you're valid and your stories matter and let's hear them all and know this full history
0: absolutely um so it's again one of those things this book to the listeners i want you all to know does so much work to help um demystify so many of these concepts um that it's a great piece, that it's like having, um, it's, it's very readable. First of all, I want to congratulate on that because as a writer uh, in academia um, and to be so accessible is um, not always what academics want, but it's very accessible to, to the readers um, in, in an academic way uh, because it's comprehensive. Um, there's so many good, um, solid pieces. of You can tell this is uh, based on research, but it's also based on humanity. There's a there's a heart in this that comes across from you. And so it makes it a great read. Um you're welcome, um, and thank you for doing that. Um, that wasn't easy, I can tell. And I wanted to ask you about your process, but I want to have some other questions first. Um, um, you do, you do, and briefly, you mentioned this earlier about. How Roanoke um, was might be like uh, experience might be like other southern cities, and I'm I'm from Louisiana. New Orleans is a city that's most similar as far as its mix of people, um, very very storied past. Um, and um, I I do I did enjoy that very brief bit in the book, and that's right up front somewhere, where you talk about all kinds of things going on in those um, those cowboy and Indian days. You know, way back when you think this this is uh, this is uh, fiction. No, it's not fiction. It's real um you know when you think oh you you, (laughs) that couldn't be that could have been going on back then Well, yes it's been going on since day one everywhere so (laughs) um but that's what i love about it because it, it it wasn't um it wasn't it's not a surprise to those of us in this community but i think it would surprise a lot of people um and i think it helps us uh uh give validity it's like we didn't just make this up we're not the first um again why why history recording history is so important and um but you just talked about welcoming uh new members young young people into this community and making them know especially trans people that there's a place for you um, you're making space for this history. You use that, that term a lot, making space um, um, for this history. Um, it, it so deserves this space. Um, and you make that point beautifully. Uh, I wanted to talk, ask you about that word. It doesn't come up a lot, but it comes up in, in the lived experiences of so many of us, um, the word trauma. It's so prickly. It's so, it gives me, you know, know, my, my memoir talks, uh, I didn't realize when I was writing my memoir that I, that a lot of the, the um, uh, impetus uh, for writing that was because of my own personal trauma. Um, But I think everyone in, in our communities that make up this big community, the big umbrella community um, have some one way or another experienced uh, traumatic um, pieces of our, of our, uh, development. And um, it's so important that we bring that to light. Talk about trauma for me, if you if you don't mind.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, something that I often say when I talk with folks, including when I talk with LGBTQ youth, is that this fixation on pride, you know, pride is one of the keywords of lgbtq life in the in the 21st century right you see the word pride everywhere but the fixation on pride sometimes overwhelms and erases the more the more tragedy sides of queer history right if we just view queer history through a celebratory lens if we just see it as an unceasing progress narrative which i really do try in this book to show that it's not like everything is always just getting better and better it is possible for things to get worse over time um it's a mix so I think you know I do try to caution that we we can't just do pride we can't just celebrate we have to to know the full histories to know both the amazing fun uh, the disco and you know the drugs and the sex and whatever was fun but to also know the the tragedy and trauma of AIDS the tragedy and trauma of policing, which is not always talked about. We've tried really hard here in Roanoke to research and to talk openly about history of very, very harsh discriminatory policing by the local police department against gay people and trans people. Um, We talk about sex. uh, I talk about sex work a lot in the book, which is sometimes LGBTQ people want to to put that, put that away and, and not, air the air it out in public same thing with public sex and cruising in public spaces sometimes people want to hide that away and not share that with the world but we we try really hard to put all of these narratives forward because we, we really can't know queer history i would say unless you have as many as many voices as possible and you have the full picture um there's a lot of stories that didn't end up in the book um, Uh, the, you know, there's some of it in the book, but absolutely if folks, um, if you, if folks would Google the Southwest Virginia LGBTQ history project, which is our project, uh, you can listen to all the full oral histories with the elders. And there's a lot about the HIV AIDS crisis, a a lot. And there's a lot, there's a lot of stories of trauma from the eighties and nineties, particularly from that era. And I didn't put a lot of that in the book because it didn't, exactly fit the the stories the storyline but um but i've i've sat on many of those interviews and you know it's yeah those are the hardest conversations
0: um having lived through that um i uh and lived through the 70s um i grew up in the 70s and having watched a lot of history unfold um and progress and you Bring up the term pride, which wasn't a thing back then. We wouldn't have had the audacity to, to be proud. Um, we were we were conditioned to be ashamed. Um, to get to pride, that was, and I think that's why pride works so well for so many people. But they, but you make this great point. You can't have earned that pride unless you've been through so many things. And that's what we can't not let go of. Um, it, it's not um, uh, self-pity. It's like, no, 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 no. You got to know the history because this didn't just happen organically. This was a lot of effort on a lot of people. Our history, our, our heroes and heroines uh, were uh, people who did a lot of uh, dangerous things to get to that point of pride. Um, so I always, you know, when I've run into somebody who is just coming out, who's young and just coming out and excited and that's all they are. Um, they want to, they want to revel in the fun part, which I think is human. Um, but you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta know that you, you earn, you owe some, some respect for the felt to a lot of people. It didn't just happen. Um, what was your favorite discovery when you were researching and writing this book?
1: Um, well, I mean, I think the greatest discovery was about myself, right? That I will, that's an easy one because, um, that's core to the narrative of the book is real, realizing I was trans, which I, I tell the story of, you know, interviewing, um, well, actually I wasn't doing the interview, but being present when older trans women were telling their life stories and it just hitting me. One of these interviews with my friend, um, who's a trans woman, maybe 70 years old. She's telling her life story and I just started crying. And I didn't know why I was losing it, why I was crying. But then you know, I processed those feelings and I was like, dang, this is this is my story too. And um, so the biggest discovery for me from doing queer history was how it has the power to shape the way we think about ourselves. It has the power to shape the way we think about our uh, what queer community can look like, what um, the way we think about what what possibilities there exist for being in gay relationships, for being trans. Uh, we can learn so much from the past and it doesn't mean that we want to, we don't. We don't want to recreate the past. We don't want to romanticize it or be overly nostalgic. Um, but we can learn so much from it in order to make a better future. So um, and to make ourselves more whole. Um, so that's the big, big, big picture of kind of what I've learned from this. Um, on but then on the more granular scale, I think for us as a community in Roanoke, which is not thought of. you know, If we go to New York and we ask people about what kind of queer cities are there in the South, no one's going to say Roanoke, Virginia. Um, it's not thought of, we're We're in the Bible Belt. We're just down the road from Jerry Falwell um, in Lynchburg. You know, so the, no one here, not a lot of people here think about this place as queer. And one of the great discoveries has just been to see Roanokers, young and old gay and straight as they've as we have told the stories from this book in public settings and people realizing oh my gosh there were six uh, gay bars and dance clubs all- at once downtown in the late 70s whereas now there's like one <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know and and just realizing like uh wait Elmwood Park which is like the main downtown park where they have concerts in the summer and stuff that was the main gay cruising strip you know so like when people see the city through new eyes when they learn these facts so it's really fascinating
0: yeah it is fascinating um i wish we could go on i wanted to um ask you um what is happening what from from because you've done all this work now you're going to have a perspective that very few people and you have inside information that very few people, you're sharing a lot of it in the book. But what's next? Um, where do you think uh, we're going?
1: Mm. Well, uh, well, here in Roanoke locally, um, this project is continuing, the history project. So there are students right now who are conducting new oral histories. So we're gonna continue to collect stories. Right now we're collecting stories with rural queer people. and. Um, outside of Roanoke City, which is great. There's a lot of queer farmers and there's a lot of just queer people who live in rural areas. So we're capturing those stories. Um, We're still looking at into the archives. We're digitizing these old newsletters that were published here in the eighties and nineties. So there's still, uh, there's still a lot of work to do. Of course, there's, there's still a lot of work to do on the issue of race of um, creating more opportunities for LGBTQ people of color here and in honestly in most queer communities in the U S um, creating more spaces for to center LGBTQ people of color's experiences and spaces of belonging. So that work is ongoing and um, you know, I, um, I've become, well, many of us in this project have thought a lot about housing for the past few years, and um, we haven't really done much on it, but we've thought about how important uh, housing is as an issue, um, because a lot of LGBTQ people are renters, and they're disproportionately homeless, and there's all kinds of housing issues. And so um, I bought a house personally um, last year in the gay neighborhood, which I'm hoping to work on and create, make it into a community space like some of those old gay houses that were community spaces back in the 70s and 80s here. Um, so the future is really ripe with possibility to continue to learn from the past and um, actually use that information to try to create spaces of survival and spaces of belonging and uplift each other today so um, I'm 100% committed to Roanoke as my home now, and I see the future as continuing to work with LGBTQ community here.
0: Um, well, that is terrific. And I think you can definitely extrapolate that Roanoke is a good um, model for so many cities of its size. Uh, I think uh, the stories are, um, are going to be similar If you go to, you know, in Louisiana, it's New Orleans. Everybody knows New Orleans is big. It's not the Roanoke of Louisiana. It's Baton Rouge is probably or Lafayette in Louisiana probably because they because they had those little places, those four or five bars on the strip. Um, And so every state has those kinds of places. And you mentioned the um, farmers, the rural people. Um, we're everywhere, (laughs) you know, and that should give a lot of people comfort. Um, and I hope it does because, uh, I think, um, in my own family, I have eight siblings. Um, the more they learned about us, um, and the the less we were hiding, the more they became uh, compassionate and, um, helpful and uh, interested and curious in a way that wasn't salacious and judgy, you know? So I think the more we, it helps us all out um, (laughs) um, uh, with the future. I think a future can can, could should only be bright. We're going to have some more hurdles. Um, I do worry that politics uh, might take away our our marriage rights, um, which I find abhorrent of a concept. Because I was telling my sister when it was happening, my sister's a psychologist in Nashville, and, and I was saying we as a community did not have the term marriage as part of our emotional vocabulary. It wasn't available to us. So we really didn't think about it. We thought about it in jest. We would have parties, we would have mock weddings, but we all knew that, that they weren't real. They weren't regarded as real. And so when it happened, a lot of us were kind of stunned and say, I don't know how to approach this. I'm, I'm thrilled, but I'm, I'm nervous that it's not, that it'll be taken away again are just taken away it hasn't it was only given once so i we need to definitely keep working to make sure those things like that don't happen um anyway um enough of my preaching um thank you so much for uh talking with me today on our podcast um even though you're a brooklynite um, your book is all about the deep south and um the, the lgbtq southern experience um I wanted to remind the uh, listeners, the book is called Living Queer History, Remembrance and Belonging in a Southern City. And it's from the University of North Carolina Press. Um, And uh, if you have any more uh, comments to add, uh, now would be a good time to tell us what your final thoughts are. If you have um, anything to add that we didn't cover.
1: I don't think so, but I had a really wonderful time talking with you. This was a great conversation.
0: It was. Thank you. I appreciate it. It could only happen if there are two of us involved doing, a, doing being involved. So I, I appreciate you. Um, well, I want to tell the listeners, if, if they have an idea for a podcast episode on a new book about L- the LGBTQ Southern experience, please let us know. Email us at Queer Voices of the South, all spelled out, uh, at gmail.com. This is Morris Ardouin. Thanks so much for listening. Join us again next time. And in the meantime, make sure to let your own queer Southern voice be heard.